Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. I have these coyotes that call me to work. <laughs> it's very effective. They're always out there. Uh, hello and welcome to the Old School House Museum here in 29 Palms. It's home to everything you've come to expect from an iconic desert town. You have the hardy natives. The European pioneers, the Canadian tourists, <laughs> gold mines, a massive military base, open range cattle, turning grassland to sand, a bizarrely popular national park, wilderness, salt pans, crackpots, religious nuts, environmental nuts, <laughs> OHVs and biodiesel Volvos, meth labs and petroglyphs. <laughs> It's all here. <laughs> and here we are, due to the government shutdown, the Bureau of Land Management speaker, who was scheduled to be here, as Cheryl said, had to cancel because who knows when the government and the national parks and all that will or won't be functioning. They just don't return your calls when the government shuts down. Well, that now-canceled speaker was to be Kyle Sullivan, BLM manager of Mojave Trails National Monument. He's apparently working another event in Joshua Tree. So afterwards, notes can be compared. <laughs> See who made the right choice. <laughs> and so Kevin Wong from the Desert Institute writes me, and I rarely get an email like this. He writes me and he says, you need to take over for the federal government. <laughs> And it even says that in the press release. As a result, I took one of my kids' uh, Junior Ranger badges. It's metal, I believe. I'm sure it's official. And if we have any emergencies or anything like that, just walk right on past me because I don't have any safety training. My occupation is editor and publisher of the Desert Oracle. This is a small periodical. It is located in the neighboring metropolis of Joshua Tree. Like most small town publishers, I am a conservative. I have been a member of the Nature Conservancy for about 35 years now. <laughs> Dues paying, a vocal supporter of the California Conservation Corps, which in its modern formation was the pet project of our former governor, Jerry Brown who described it as something between a summer camp and a Jesuit monastery. And I am a believer in conservation easements, local land trust, etc. I've had a lot of varied interest over my life and career, many of them philosophical or otherwise impractical, but the one thing that stuck, I learned when I was very young, and I learned it from Woodsy Owl in the Saturday morning cartoons. Now, Woodsy, I can't remember if he could talk. I don't think he could. But give a hoot was associated with him. <laughs> and that stuck, more or less. Take care of your deserts and your forests and your mountains. Be a land conservative and save crowd. Especially here in the eastern Mojave, the last barrier of wilderness and near wilderness, keeping Los Angeles from spilling over the desert spilling over the Nevada state line, 
unholy copulation with Las Vegas, <laughs> which would make things not quite so nice out here. As a middle-aged white man in 2019 America, I say like all the rest of them, I liked it better before. <laughs> Especially when the top marginal tax rate was 92%. Under Dwight Eisenhower, our great Republican general and president, back when the overwhelming popularity of national parks was answered with the 2019 equivalent of a $10 billion package to invest in the parks, update the roads, visitor centers, campgrounds, restoration. That was a Department of the Interior program called Mission 66. Now maybe we'll have something like that again, maybe soon. We seem to be in the kind of Depression-era crisis with the climate. It calls for drastic action. Maybe we'll get it. A couple of months ago, I noticed various political journalists in Washington mocking the idea of a Green New Deal. Now it's a real thing. It's making its way through Congress. Every announced presidential candidate must now have a position on this. This thing that allegedly was not serious or realistic a few weeks ago. Things can happen fast. And all the candidates, all the Democrats anyway so far, have answered this question about the Green New Deal with a pretty straightforward, yes, I support it. Well, just in time, if it happens, maybe that's why it's happening now. We always have to push things to the point of absolute crisis because we are a species primarily known for putting things off. For as long as possible, it might have developed when we were still happily living in little bands of people here and there. A time when modern economists estimate we only spent about two hours a day working. Food, shelter, etc. The basics of survival. These are averages, of course. If a big herd of monstrous deer was coming through, you'd work every day hunting, preparing for the year ahead. You might pick blueberries all day long when they're ripe. But on average, our cousins, the hunter-gatherers, spent a couple of hours a day working, about 14 hours a week. I think we'd all do better off with a 14-hour work week, especially if that work is done outside in the fresh air, the excitement of the hunt, the easy labor of collecting mushrooms or berries from the forest. But with so much time to do important work, it is our natural inclination to put it off. Wait until the last possible minute till we're very hungry, because then there's no choice. But now, maybe in the shadow of imminent death and destruction, maybe now we'll be forced to deal with the slow rolling climate catastrophe. The climate change situation seems to not really have any romantic notions about whether humans are still around or not. Post-climate change, the world might be quite happy with ravens, coyotes, cockroaches, and no internet. Now, when the national parks are fully funded and anybody willing to work can put solar panels on rooftops or turn city brownfields into public parks or help lost tourists not run over Joshua trees or each other, when you can make a good living from doing good work that's going to help the general situation, we're probably going to have a happier situation, maybe, in the years ahead. For some people I know around here, they're very cynical about the future. 
But we can be cynical or we can do something and be hopeful. And maybe, maybe in the years ahead, a decade off now, when President Ocasio-Cortez comes out to <laughs> cut the ribbon on the new eco campground that's built on some old scrape lots in Yucca Valley, we can look back at this year and say, well, I guess that's when it really kind of started to happen, when we started to get it together. But I'm not here to talk about that. I was brought here for emergency entertainment <laughs> in a time of crisis. And now it's time for strange and unusual tales from our desert. And this is something I occasionally do on Desert Oracle Radio. The idea is to inform and entertain and perhaps distract, if only for a little while, from the suffocating and pervasive gloom. And intended, of course, to encourage the habit and practice of learning all kinds of weird little stories about your place in the world. Because it really does make us feel more at home. You feel like you're where you're supposed to be. Maybe forever. Maybe for the next couple of months. So here are some stories about our place. If you know them, because you know a lot more about the stuff than I do. You can either complain or sit politely, seething. <laughs> Tell me afterwards. I was there in 1966. I have no idea what you're talking about. This is the story of the Mojave Megaphone. The Mojave Megaphone is something that exists on the far western edge of Mojave National Preserve. It's a contraption mounted upon a boulder pile. It's bolted onto two boulders in particular. And at least some desert people refer to it as the Mojave Megaphone. It's about eight feet long. It's constructed from welded strips of iron. It's all rusted and corroded and mysterious looking. And the shape is somewhat similar to the old rocket engine mounts at Rockard Site Road just north of Edwards Air Force Base. Now that landmark adjoins a rocket laboratory and an Air Force test flight base. The Mojave Megaphone is far from anything. It's far from anything but a now abandoned Tidewater Tonopah Railway Spur, midway between Ludlow and Zizek's. You take a pretty good dirt road. You can either go south from the 15 or north from the 66. I believe it's about 15 miles south of the 15. Now, I found some pictures of some guys posing with the Mojave megaphone. So they've crawled up this pile of boulders, and they're standing around it. And they don't look somber, but the captions to the photos were somber. They claim they had to make the trip to tune the Mojave megaphone. <laughs> based on some arcane ritual, I can only suppose, and there have been claims that this is the only surviving, or only discovered as of yet, megaphone that's actually part of a chain of megaphones that goes across the desert, like something out of Lord of the Rings, where they all lit the fires to let people know the orcs were coming. There's a theory on the internet that the megaphone was actually intended to be the horn of an emergency siren. This theory is not by anyone who was alive at the time it was constructed, but it's put down with uh, great certainty. The idea was if there was trouble on the railway line, 
and this comes from the guess that maybe chemical weapons during World War One were transferred on this spur line. If the train crashed and the chemical weapons were spilling and clouding over the desert, someone would run across the desert, climb a hundred feet of boulders, attach some kind of cranked air machine to the back of this tube, and it would let people a little ways up know what was going on. A siren would work just fine a hundred feet down the boulder pile by the railroad track. <laughs> so it's a great mystery. I hope none of us ever finds the answer because it is important to have mysteries in the desert. Now we will talk briefly about ghosts. It was told to me only a few weeks ago that there is some sort of annoying ghost currently active at Roy's up on Route 66. This ghost turns lights on and off, ceiling fans on and off, makes noise, slams doors, that sort of thing, poltergeist activity. And this was told to me in strict confidence at my office just a few weeks ago <laughs> by the caretaker there. So please keep this information to yourself. He doesn't want a lot of these ghost hunter TV shows showing up and ruining his nice gig out there on Route 66. In Wonder Valley last summer, according to a very reliable young man that I met after a campfire talk that I did down in Palm Springs, strange globs of bluish light swirled all around this young man as he was sleeping on a pool chair outside in the summer heat. He woke up and all these little entities of light gave him the once-over and then they continued over the open desert. He said he watched them tumble over the landscape. There's a persistent story of mystery tracks in Wonder Valley, and I bet some of you have heard this story. And if you have, talk to me afterwards, because it's a very weird story. I've had a number of people come up and tell me about these things over the past couple of years. The claim is residents will discover these very narrow lines that go for hundreds of yards through the sand, sometimes a mile or more. Now, the oddest part is that the lines will end, say, at the wall, the exterior wall of a homestead cabin. And then they'll pick up on the opposite side. <laughs> As if whatever it is just tracked right through the house and came out the opposite wall and continued across the desert. That these lines will appear on clear mornings and it looks just about the depth of, say, a lizard tail with no feet on either side. The only thing I've ever heard of that is in any way similar is the famous story of the devil's footprints found in England after a heavy snowfall in 1855. Hooves that went over barns and through meadows. It may have been one of the earliest newspaper hoaxes. A, another very short ghost story involves the supposed ghost of the late Graham Parsons. He was the singer and songwriter from the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers. He perished in Room 8 of the Joshua Tree Inn in September of 1973. He died of an opiate overdose, which, 40 years ago, was much more romantic when uh, Purdue Pharma wasn't racking up immense opiate overdoses every year in every state in America. Well, an interesting thing is that people have to request roommate if they hope to stay there. You can't just pull up to the inn, so the story goes, say, I need a room, and they put you in room eight. 
The story is that nobody gets roommate by accident. You have to want to try to sleep in the room where Graham Parsons went in and out of consciousness for many hours and had what sounds like a pretty sad and painful death right before his one very good record came out. The one with Emmylou Harris called Grievous Angel. He had all kinds of family troubles, marriage troubles. Both of his parents committed suicide. He was, as Chris Hillman from the Birds and Burrito Brothers once said, a poor little rich boy born to a huge fortune from the Florida orange groves. And people just loved to stay in this haunted room. A young couple from England came by my office recently. They wanted to tell me about their experience of staying in the room. They requested it. I said, was it haunted? They said, yes, by something. And maybe it was only haunted by their expectations. In any case, one of the newlyweds slept right through it. She was fine. And the other, well, he was very troubled. He said he was haunted and troubled by a corner of the room where a mirror was. In the morning, he asked at the desk, and they said, oh, that mirror is the only piece of furniture that's original to the room. Now, in most hotels, if you went to the desk and said, I could not sleep because of the terrible ghost in your establishment, they might give you a half off the night or a voucher or something. Not at the Joshua Tree Inn. <laughs> People pay extra for the specific gloomy haunted experience. Now, you all look like mostly locals and neighbors, so you know one of the main topics of conversation in the high desert. Why are there no restaurants here? Why are there so few restaurants here? There are 45,000 people in Palm Springs. There are 50,000 people in the Morongo Basin. Where are the restaurants? We have millions of tourists, just like the low desert. It is the greatest desert mystery that I've come across. <laughs> Greater than the blinding white lights that converted St. Paul on the road to Damascus. But there is a type of food that originates, 20th century food that originates in the Mojave Desert. Native to the Mojave Desert, Del Taco. <laughs> Del Taco, the very first one, was a hamburger and burritos shack, so call it Del Taco, of course, in Yermo, outside of Barstow. The stand is still there. Now it's a hamburger place owned by someone else. They are still headquartered in Barstow. Our local 24-hour taco shops, which tradition dictates, should always be called Santana's, no matter what they change the sign to. <laughs> they were founded right up the road in Yucca Valley by Don Arturo Santana back in 1986. Don Santana is the proud inventor of the California burrito. It's from here. Now, this is a burrito of truly United States proportions. It's about two feet long. It's got about two pounds of steak inside and a couple of baskets of soggy French fries. One of the leading news organizations of our time, BuzzFeed, has called this dubious invention the world's greatest burrito. BuzzFeed is based in New York. Now, back in 1855, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis convinced the U.S. Senate to fund a camel expedition from Texas to the Mojave Desert. Both one-hump and two-hump camels were imported from the Middle East, along with Arab and Turkish camel drivers. 
The 70 camels successfully crossed the Great American Desert and easily crossed the Colorado River while numerous sheep and mules drowned. After reaching the Tehachapis in 1857, the camels were retired to live out their lives at various ranches in California and Arizona. Now Jefferson Davis joined the Confederacy in war against the United States, and his enthusiasm for camels soon became unfashionable in Washington. Now, Haji Ali was the best known of the camel drivers from the old Ottoman Empire. He lived a long and happy life in the American West, and he died a half century after he arrived in 1902. He is buried in Quartzsite, Arizona, beneath a pyramid memorial topped with a copper camel. He kept some of his sturdy animals to the end as pets and friends, and he once used a couple of camels to break up an all-German picnic in Los Angeles. (laughs) After the Germans refused to invite him to the picnic. (laughs) Now, here's a story about a supposed fictional creature that actually was living and walking in our desert. I'm speaking, of course, of the Jawas from Star Wars. <laughs> when you see the Jawas carry R2-D2 up the ridge to the enormous sand crawler tank in 1977 Star Wars movie, you are looking at a group of costume fourth graders from Death Valley Elementary. <laughs> the children of park rangers. There's more of the Mojave in Star Wars than most people realize, not least because the story of the production skips the Mojave completely, claiming that all the desert planet scenes were filmed in North Africa. This is not true. A lot of those shots from North African desert villages and landscapes had to be redone somewhere close to Los Angeles because a lot of the footage was bad. And so a very small crew was sent out in the spring of 1977, right before the movie came out, to Death Valley and other spots of the Mojave to get various scenes. In Death Valley, they got the scene of Mos Eisley Spaceport, the hive of scum and villainy. That shot is from Dante's Peak, and what you're looking at is basically Furnace Creek Ranch, but through map paintings, they added some space buildings around it. Also in Death Valley, the sand people who had kind of bandages and pipes all over their head. They rode these weird animals. The animal, in fact, was an elephant borrowed from a wildlife safari park in Silicon Valley. And they put these kind of bighorn costume things on the elephant and hung palm fronds off the sides of it. And it became a uh, space alien beast of burden. Aldous Huxley, the British author of enduring fiction and nonfiction books, including Brave New World and The Doors of Perception, moved from Los Angeles to a 40-acre property in the Mojave High Desert in 1940. He produced several interesting works there, including his mythical essay, The Desert, and his grim children's fable, The Crows of Pear Blossom. Still in print as a children's picture book, some 73 years after its original publication, The children's book features a pair of crows. Now, we know they're supposed to be ravens. These crows are bedeviled by rattlesnakes. The rattlesnakes climb up the trees where the crows live, and they eat the crows' eggs. So the crows devise a 
very brutal and drawn out way to murder the rattlesnakes. And then they drape the dead bodies of the rattlesnakes around the nursery of their baby crows. It's a kid's book. (laughs) Now you look like an educated crowd. You look like people who know about theology, ancient Bible texts. Joshua is the same name as Jesus. You know that, right? They're both Yeshua, Yeshua. So I always try to get people to call our famously weird yucca trees Jesus trees because it's technically the same name. And nobody ever wants to do this. But if we really wanted to get the national park crowds down to, say, Great Recession levels, maybe we could rename the place Jesus Tree. It would start sounding, you know, a little less sane to travelers. They would not be sure what's going on. There's even sort of a historical reason to do so, is the people who first brought the gospel of Jesus to California, the friars from Mexico and the soldiers who accompanied them, first saw Joshua trees when they were chasing mission Indians who had regretted their religious conversion and fled for the high desert. The first Europeans to see what is now Joshua Tree National Park were the mission soldiers chasing the native Californians who decided they'd had quite enough of the friars and the chores. They used to work two hours a day, and then all of a sudden... Now, having renounced the Spanish faith, these free-again souls fled the San Diego mission for the high desert where the pursuing Spaniards were marked upon the hideous yucca trees that we all love so much now. At least, that's one of the stories. It's lesser known than the Mormon pioneer version, which takes place about 100 years later, about 80 years later. The Mormon pioneers were the ones who, of course, named our bizarre and grotesque yucca trees, with their many long tentacles full of spikes and spiders, dead deer mice. I was in the Arthur Ripley Desert Woodland just east of Lancaster a while back. And there was a Joshua tree with its typical many arms. And there was an arm just about at eye level. And there, perfectly preserved, was a deer mouse, which had tried to get up into the flowers and had fallen and was perfectly speared and mummified. I took about 40 pictures. <laughs> anyway, the Mormon pioneers saw these things and said, this reminds us of Joshua. And Joshua, the Old Testament hero who had to pray for help against the neighboring military forces and the defensive walls, and apparently when he prayed, he looked like a Joshua tree. For two decades, Minerva Hamilton Hoyt had been lobbying her friends in Washington to protect what she intended to be called Desert Plants National Monument. And when Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal was at its peak in 1936, well, that's when our national monument came into being. After 20 years of Hoyt's persuasive arguing, by the time of the New Deal, there was a huge investment in national parks and public land. It was part of the massive federal investment in public lands that provided lots of jobs and taught a whole generation about the stewardship of public lands during the years of the Great Depression. 
the Joshua Tree, the national park, the three million annual visitors, the 300 music videos and fashion shoots and Netflix shows made here every week is the way it is today and not like the far western Mojave, Palmdale, Victorville, etc. because of the New Deal. Oracle broadcasting from Joshua Tree, California from Amboy to Zizix and good night from the voice of the desert.